Daniel Gordis is a senior vice president and the Corette Distinguished Fellow at Shalane College. The author of more than 10 books, Gordis is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and writes regularly for the Jerusalem Post. Gordis's History of the State of Israel, entitled Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn, received the 2016 National Jewish Book Award as the Book of the Year. Gordis's writings have appeared in magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, the New Republic, the New York Times Magazine, Commentary Magazine, and Foreign Affairs, and his books have received numerous awards. Professor Alan Dershowitz called Gordis one of Israel's most thoughtful observers. I sat down with Danny in his office at Shalem College in Jerusalem. We spoke about his newest book, We Stand Divided, The Rift Between American Jews and Israel. We discussed what's causing the tension between some parts of the American Jewish community and the state of Israel, and what can be done about it. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. So you wrote the book, a book, but it seems like the book, on the American-Jewish relationship with the state of Israel and the state of Israel with the American-Jewish community. Based on your research and personal experience, and then you spent several months in America promoting the book. How did American Jews respond? They responded in different ways. Interestingly enough, when I was writing the book, I really had no idea that I was writing what was going to be a controversial book. I thought it was going to be kind of an interesting book. In other words, there's a much more complex history to the relationship between American Jews and Israel than most people know. Most people think the problems in the relationship are somehow rooted in contemporary events like the conflict with the Palestinians. The occupation, as people who are opposed to it call it, the rabbinate, and so on and so forth. And if they saw that actually the conflict goes way back to the 1920s and the 1940s and the 1950s, they would understand, obviously, that there's issues that have nothing to do with these contemporary things. And they would say, oh, that's actually interesting. I didn't know that. I kind of thought it would be on that level. But what I discovered was that in making that argument, I was actually treading on a kind of orthodoxy of American Jewish liberal life. The orthodoxy being it is because of the occupation. And since the book basically says it's not because of the occupation, it doesn't say that the occupation is not a big deal. It it just says the occupation is a huge issue in Israeli life, regardless of what your politics are. It's an enormous issue, but it's not the reason for the rift. That's all I was arguing in the book. And therefore, Center and Right gave the book very nice reviews. It got a nice review in the Wall Street Journal. It got a nice review in Tablet Magazine. It got a nice review Uh, in all sorts of places. And the left did not like the book at all because anybody who claims that it's not the occupation that is the problem, or anybody who suggests that even if you solved somehow the problem of the occupation, the rift would still continue, uh, finds that thoroughly objectionable. So the most, uh, the most egregious, I would say, review of the book was by Judith Shulovitz in the New York Times. Uh, so I actually had to respond to her egregious review as a long, long blog on the Times of Israel that your listeners can follow. 
Uh, but basically, the book was received very well by people on the center on the right because they thought it was interesting. It was received much less well on the left because they are not open to the possibility that there is any explanation for the rift between these two communities that is not rooted in the conflict. Why do you think that is? I think there's two reasons for that. One of the reasons is that Americans have a belief that every problem has a solution. And so they look at Israel and the Palestinians and they say, I just don't understand. Right? America has made peace with Japan. America has made peace with Germany. America has made peace with Vietnam. America is, uh, you know, made peace with all kinds of other nations out there. How is it that you guys fighting over a sliver of land, some subsection of New Jersey, the size of it is, that you can't work this out? There simply has to be a solution. And so they say, when you say that these issues go way back and they have to do not but what Israel does, but what Israel is. In other words, that Israel is a very particularist project of the Jews, by the Jews, for the Jews, or to quote the Balfour Declaration, His Majesty's government viewing with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, whereas America is an entirely different project, right, in the course of human events, writes Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, or Emma Lazarus at the base of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, which he calls huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If you're part of a huddled mass yearning to breathe free, America's for you, says even the Balfour Declaration, not even the Jewish sources, a national home for the Jewish people. So America and Israel are very, very different projects. And that therefore means that the rift between American Jews and Israel may not be about current political issues, but maybe because we're really such different political, cultural, religious animals. And therefore, the rift has no solution in that regard, or no obvious solution. We'll come back to what I try to argue for in the book in terms of solution, I guess, a little bit later in our conversation. So part of the problem is that Americans don't like this idea, oh, he has no solution. He has no solution to the rift, and he has no solution to the occupation. What I try to point out to people, of course, is when I speak to Americans, tell me your solution for the gun problem. And then they get very quiet. The gun problem in America. Yeah. There's 330 million privately owned guns in America. So even if you stopped selling them all tomorrow. 333 million? Yeah. And how many citizens in America? 360, whatever, it's, it's something incredible. like that. incredible. And there are, I forget how many, but it's in the hundreds of thousands of AR-15s. In other words, an AR-15 is just a killing machine. It serves no purpose whatsoever other than that. You don't hunt with it. You kill people with it. There's hundreds of thousands of privately owned AR-15s, according to some estimates. So I look at people when they say, but you have no solution for the Israel problem. How's that possible? And I say to them, well, what's your solution for the gun problem in America? Then they get very quiet. I say to them, regardless of what your opinion about Obamacare might or might not have been, recognize that under the height of Obamacare, 40 million Americans still had no health insurance. They couldn't get prenatal vitamins, they couldn't get a throat culture, and they certainly couldn't get a heart transplant. Israel has exactly zero such citizens. Doesn't matter if they're Muslims or they're Christians or they're Jews or they're immigrants or they're native-borns. We have not a single citizen who doesn't have full health coverage. What are you Americans going to do about that problem? And they sort of stare at you. And then I say, Look, there are really big problems that all great countries face that have no solutions. So in terms of the conflict with the Palestinians, you're right. I don't don't tragically have a solution. I have some ideas about directions and so on and so forth. But do I have a magic wand or a rabbit to pull out of a hat? I actually don't. And therefore, I don't think you should be annoyed with the book that argues that the rift between American Jews and Israel is somehow situated in something else. Because it's not like I'm trying to forestall a solution. I think we should be honest. There's no immediate solution to that. 
And therefore, the, the problem between our two communities is much deeper. And the last thing I'll say on this front is that I think this is like any good relationship. You know, it could be between friends, it can be between parents and children, but it's most especially true in a relationship between partners, lovers, partners, husband, wife, it doesn't make any difference, anything like that. We all have issues in those relationships that are, are foundational issues. There are things with, about our partners that we fundamentally disagree with or react differently, et cetera, and we're not going to change them, and they're not going to change us. The way those relationships thrive is because we surface those issues and we acknowledge them and we, 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 we point to them head on and we say, this is you and this is me and this is always going to be an issue for us and here's how we're going to build a life together. And if you don't surface those issues, then every little thing leads to an explosion. Uh-huh. American Jews and Israelis have pretended for a very, very, very long time that we're more or less the same thing. They have freedom of assembly. We have freedom of assembly. They have Freedom of religion, we have freedom of religion. They have democracy, we have democracy. They have McDonald's, we have McDonald's. They have 800 numbers, we have 800 numbers. We're more or less the same thing. We're just the kind of a Hebrew-speaking, falafel-eating version of America, just smaller in a bad neighborhood. But that's wrong. And because we have both told ourselves that lie, when we do things that the other side would never countenance, we get enraged. And the idea of the book was to say, let's stop getting enraged with each other, not by looking away from each other, by first understanding how different we really are, then we can build a different kind of relationship. What's different about the relationship now than before 1948, from 1948 onwards? Why right now? What's, what's so unique about now? Well, we assume that now is worse than it's ever been. That's the feeling, right? That's the feeling. That's what a lot of people write out there. You can find things in the New York Times, American Jews and Israelis are heading for a nasty breakup. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, the division or the, the, the decomposition of the Jewish people because of this issue. So there is a sense that it was always a honeymoon and now the marriage has hit the rocks. So the first thing that I try to point out in the book is that's just not true. In other words, there was huge battles between American Zionists and European Zionists because there wasn't in Israel yet. Uh, in the 1920s, Chaim Weitzman comes to Chicago in the summer of 1921 to wrest control of the Zionist movement away from Louis Brandeis. Because they had a radically different conception of what this project in Palestine was going to be about. Brandeis was writing, we should all be Zionists. We American Jews should all be Zionists because Zionism, he says explicitly, will make us better Americans. We would never move there, he says explicitly. Our children would never move there, he also says explicitly. But we should be Zionists because it's going to make us better Americans. And Chaim Weizmann and other European Jews were trying to build a state before it's too late. And of course, they failed. They, they built a you state. You mean before the Holocaust? Yeah, well, they didn't know the Holocaust was coming, but they wanted to build a state before the destruction of European Jewry, which they knew was coming in some way, shape, manner, or form. They didn't realize how soon, and they didn't realize how devastatingly horrible, but they had a deep sense that Europe was going to go south for the Jews. They weren't interested in thought experiments like Brandeis's, you know, it's an interesting thing to make us better Americans. They thought that was ludicrous. What are you talking about? We're trying to build an actual state that we are going to move to, and our children are going to live in because time is running out. Now, in 1921, again, nobody knows how quickly time is going to run out. 20 years later, it's all going to be too late. So Weitzman comes to Chicago in the summer of 1921 and, um, you know, wrests control of the Zionist movement away from Louis Brandeis. Nobody anymore knows that story. Or once Unless they read your books. Well, unless they read the book. That's correct. Um, That's right. Nobody really knows anymore the story of the huge battles between David Ben-Gurion as the first prime minister, 48, 49, 50, between him and Jacob Blaustein, who's the head of the American Jewish Committee back then. American Jewish Committee is still a very important organization, but back then it was the American Jewish organization. In other words, if you headed 
the American Jewish community as the layperson, you are essentially in some way the spokesman for American Judaism. There's no American organization really that has that role anymore because we have many different organizations. Times have changed. It's a much more divided community. But back then, Blaustein really is Mr. Jewish America. And he says to Ben-Gurion, what are you talking about? That there's a new center of the Jewish world, which is what Ben-Gurion was saying now that Israel had been formed. I mean, there are more Jews in New York, says Blaustein, than there are Jews in your country. So by what are you talking about? And stop coming to America and talking about Jews making Aliyah, moving to Israel. We're not going to do that. In that regard, he sounds a lot like Brandeis. And this erupts. And he says to Ben-Gurion eventually, you cut this out. You stop talking about Israel as being the new center of the Jewish world. And you stop talking about American Jews having to make Aliyah. Or we are going to stop our financial support for you and our political support for you. And they end up penning what's called the Blaustein Ben-Gurion Agreement. Neither one of them stuck to it too terribly carefully but it kind of cleared the air a little bit. But again, how many American Jews know that there was a huge rupture between these two communities in 49, 50, when Israel was really a fledgling state and desperately needed that support? The one last example that I'll give you is from 1960, right? Ben-Gurion comes into the Knesset and he announces that Israel's captured Eichmann. And there is in the Knesset no jubilation. I mean, what's to celebrate? There is no joy, but there is a deep sense of satisfaction. 12 years old is how old Israel is. And in 12 years, the Jewish state has now changed the existential condition of the Jewish people. You can no longer kill millions of Jews with impunity and then go live out your days in the suburbs of Buenos Aires. Those days are over. You massacre Jews, the Jews will find you. And the Knesset erupts in thunderous applause. Again, I think it's very important to state not joyous applause, but applause that somehow reflects the satisfaction. How many people in that room in 1960 had lost? Parents, siblings, children. I mean, this was a mamash, a post-Holocaust group of people. In America, the rank and file people in the streets of Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, etc., they also felt a deep sense of satisfaction. But America, America's Jewish leadership was in many respects appalled. Uh, Joseph Proskauer, who had run the AJC, prior to Blaustein, and many, many others we won't go into right now, basically asked the question from the book of Exodus, Misamcha, who appointed you? Which is what Moses says to the taskmaster, right? Because they say, how many Israelis did Eichmann kill? None. Eichmann was done his work, God forbid you call it that, but Eichmann was done being a Nazi in 1945. Israel wasn't created until 1948. The Nazis didn't kill any Israelis. So by virtue of what does Israel position itself as the, the organization or the body or the people or the country who are going to go get Eichmann. There was just as part of an ongoing tug of war between American Jews and Israel about that same question with Ben-Gurion and Blaustein. Where is the center of the Jewish world? Now, today, we're speaking at the beginning of 2020, when there are more Jews in Israel than there are in all of America. And Sergio de la Pergola, who was Israel's most important demographer, predicts that in sometime in 2040-something, 2043, 2048, There's going to be 10.6 million Jews in Israel and 5.3 million Jews in America. So it'll be exactly 2x. There's going to be no question whatsoever about where the center of the Jewish world is already moving to Israel, and it'll be clearly Israel in a very, very short period of time, right? I mean, it's it's 20 years from now, which is a blink of the eye in Jewish history. I think people have no recognition that when they talk about how bad things are today, that it was very bad long before in 21 and 49 and 60. What makes it seem a little bit worse today, I think, of course, is social media. In other words, back then, 
the voice of Jewish America was filtered through major organizations and publications that those major organizations controlled, right? Whether it was the forward or local Jewish papers, it wasn't that any college kid who had an opinion could go start a blog and get it read by hundreds of thousands of people if it got the right traction and so forth. So we live in a much more fractious world. We live in a fractious world unrelated to the Jews. And we live in a world in which those fractious disagreements take up a lot more space. So it does seem that there is, um, you know, more, more division today. And I think there might actually be, and I'll just end with this, we're witness really to the utter demise of bipartisanship in America in 2020. I mean, even people who believe in it don't see it there anymore. And a lot of people no longer believe in it, right? The president of the United States, what everyone thinks of him right now, there's got supporters, he's got detractors, whatever. He's very clear. He thinks bipartisanship is ridiculous. He, he's not in favor of it. He doesn't see it as an ideal. Um, and there are Jews on the hard right who think that they have no interest in participating in anything with the Jews on the left. And the Jews on the left see the right as racist, as ogres, as et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these Jews have no interest whatsoever in part in participating or in joining together, even in the support of Israel. And so Israel has gone from being an issue that once bound the Jews together. We could disagree about Obama or Johnson or Kennedy or Reagan or Nixon, but at least when it came to Israel, we were all there together. That's no longer the case. The left wing of the Jew, of the Democratic Party, which is home to many Jews, is becoming kind of overtly problematic for Israel. Uh, the right wing of the Republican Party, which is deeply loyal to Israel, is becoming very problematic for a lot of other Jews who, even if they care about Israel, don't like the way in which the right wing of the Republican Party is supporting Israel and so on and so forth. So this has become very divisive, very toxic. There are many rabbis who will not talk about Israel from the pulpit because they fear getting fired. I was at a meeting not that long ago in New York City where a very major federation group of people had gotten together, federation heads from all over the country had gotten together. And one said, if I get fired, it's going to be because of Israel. It's incredible. Right. I mean, it won't be because I didn't raise enough money for the campaign. It won't be because we gave too much money to education, not enough money for homes for the aging. This person said, if I get fired, I'm not expecting to get fired, but if I get fired, it'll have something to do with Israel. So Israel's become toxic. And um, therefore, American Jews do believe that it's worse. Now, it may be worse in a different way, but this radical divide between the two communities is actually nothing new, which is why it's high time we change the conversation and put all that contemporary stuff aside and say, let's talk about what really separates us, which is the fact that we are very, very, very different Jewish projects. Which really takes, which takes thought, reading, thinking, digesting. It takes an effort to get to that point. And most people aren't going to make that effort. A lot of people just shoot from the hip when it comes to their feelings about the state of Israel. Well, a lot of people shoot from the hip when it comes to their feelings about anything, right? In other words, we live in a very shoot from the hip world. We live in a world which is now measured not in terms of chapters and volumes, but in terms of screen fills. And so people shoot from the hip, whether it's you know, this American foreign policy or this domestic policy. Young people today, for example, who are Bernie Sanders supporters or Elizabeth Warren supporters who are big advocates of socialism, which, again, without you and me taking a position on that right now, one could just simply ask them, socialism actually had a good run in a couple of different countries, mm -hmm. Soviet Union, Israel, a lot of others. And the vast majority of those countries have abandoned it in some way, shape, matter, or form. I mean, Israel certainly has. Even the Soviet Union is largely former Soviet Union, Russia, is largely capitalist these days. Have you guys given any thought to why it didn't work? What is it about human nature and the free market and human drive for success and even for wealth that animates? They don't have that conversation. So you're right. 
people shoot from the hip about the Israel stuff and the Jewish stuff, and they shoot from the hip in general. Uh, but I think it's even more than that. I think that part of what having this conversation would entail is for me as an American Jew, let's say I'm a typical suburban liberal American Jew who's deeply committed to Judaism and deeply committed to Israel. Okay. In other words, I, I really care about Israel. I think Israel's an amazing accomplishment. I believe that it's important because there should be a place for Jews around the world to go to if, God forbid, things go south in France or in Argentina or wherever else. Again, to quote Brandeis, not cynically in any way whatsoever, I'm not going there. I have a great life in America, and my children and my grandchildren have great lives in America, so we're not going. But I, I really do think it's amazing that it exists, and I think it should exist, and I understand that there are people who want to live there. I'm a huge supporter, but here's what I think. I think really that when you look at the world and you ask yourself, what's the ideal democracy? Even in this day and age when American democracy is so struggling and there are many people who are despairing about it, at least in the period that we're in and whatever, we're not going to get into that today. But even in an era in which people are worried about American democracy, I can still take a step back and say, okay, we're in a tough period right now, but American democracy is the greatest democracy on earth. And what is it? It's fundamentally universalist. It's race blind. It's religion blind. It's color blind. It's ethnicity blind. It's gender blind. It's sexual orientation blind. That's what I think a real democracy should be. And then I look at Israel and I say, wait a minute, you're not actually ethnicity blind and you're not religion blind. You, you have are a law that's color blind. You are definitely color blind yeah. and you're definitely sexual orientation blind and you're definitely gender blind. That's all great. In fact, we're much more sexual orientation blind than America ever has been, right? Israel never had don't ask, don't tell. Israel has always had officers who were gay and lesbian or whatever, and it just wasn't of any interest to anybody in the army who their partners were. They wanted to know, can they do their job? Right. So Israel's a lot ahead of America in those things. But an American Jew looks and says, wait a minute, you actually have a law of return. And the law of return says that Jews can automatically get citizenship and non-Jews don't automatically get citizenship. You pass a nation state law a year or two ago. And even, by the way, if I understand that it was because of a political thing inside Israel's right and Bibi was trying to buy some loyalty from the right-wing parties, but still, they say, even if I put that aside, you actually say that Israel's a Jewish and democratic state. What do you mean? I mean, if somebody came in Texas and said, we want to actually pass a constitutional amendment that America is a Christian democratic state, we would go bonkers. And we would say, that's not what a real democracy is. So how can you be a real democracy if you say, as did Balfour, as did a basic law in the 1980s, as did a basic law in the 1990s, as did the nation state law a couple of years ago. By the way, the nation state law essentially said nothing at all that was new, right? But American Jews went ape. The Atlantic, the New York Times, the Forward all ran articles saying Israel is abandoning its democratic roots. Really? I mean, it was exactly what the Declaration of Independence said. It was exactly what the basic law in the 1980s said, 1990s, the Balfour Declaration but the nation-state law now brought home to people who hadn't thought about those texts ever or in a very long time. It's a different project. And therefore, they feel that somehow um, Israel must be a kind of, a, not a USDA choice democracy, but a, like we say in Hebrew, sugbet democracy. Like, you know, a great beast, second-class democracy, not a real, real democracy. Now, that's not true. It's a different kind of a democracy because it has a different kind of a purpose. America is about bringing freedom to people wherever they come from, whatever they look like, whatever they believe. And it's been pretty successful at that. Israel is about saving the Jewish people. That's the purpose of the country. And it's been pretty darn successful as that, at that also. So what I think it requires is not only doubling down and thinking, as you point out, but it, it also involves recognizing 
that what I've always assumed is the best model of democracy is only one model of democracy. It's kind of like, to use a ridiculous metaphor, what's a better thing to have, a pickup truck or a helicopter? I've heard, I've heard you speak about this. Analogy. You know, and it depends really what you want to do. If you want to move 15 boxes of books to your neighbor's house, three houses down, a pickup truck is a lot more useful than a helicopter. And if you're going to try to ferry troops across the Sinai Desert, a pickup truck will do you very little good. What's better to have a liberal democracy like America or an ethnic democracy like Israel? It depends what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to be a model for human beings worldwide and create a freedom-loving country that's open to everyone, America's the model. If you're trying to save the Jewish people, Israel's ethnic democracy is the model. But that means acknowledging in your heart of hearts that I, as an American, live in a great democracy, but not the only model of what a great democracy can be. And that's the conversation that we have to have, and that's the conversation that really nobody wants to have. And I'll tell you why I think it's actually a very short-sighted desire not to have it. I think a lot of American Jewish leaders, I have a lot of friends who are rabbis in America who are really bright people, really learned people. They care a lot about Judaism, obviously. They care a lot about Israel. They're afraid of this conversation because they're afraid of what's the reaction going to be if people say, oh my God, it's really not a liberal democracy. Like it's, I'm totally, I'm appalled, right? But what rabbis don't understand and what federation leaders very often don't understand and what lots of other American Jewish leaders don't understand is they don't really, your congregants, your students, your communities, they don't really need you to talk to them about the political issues of the day because they read English as well as you do. And they can read the op-ed section of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or go online. What do you really know about those issues that they don't know? Actually, nothing. You're establishing for them where you stand. Okay, very nice. But they don't actually walk out of shul or out of a federation meeting or out of a meeting at Hillel or whatever the case may be saying, not, okay, now I know where this organization stands or this rabbi stands, but saying, wow, I never thought about that at all. But what would happen if contemporary American Jewish leaders read with people Bialik and Alterman and the Declaration of Independence and all kinds of Israeli cultural stuff that American Jews have no idea about? so that they actually have value added because they teach things that no one else can teach them, and they can actually get American Jews to walk out of shul, federation meetings, Hillel, etc., say, wow, I never knew that. That's actually interesting. In other words, instead of Israel being a toxic issue, which they want to steer away from, Israel could become a fascinating issue. It requires a little bit of work, a little preparation, a little bit of study in the part of these Jewish leaders, but then it actually gives them something to say that no one else is saying. And I really, for the life of me, don't understand why they're not lunging at that opportunity, but they're not, most of them. There's a few, clearly, but it's most of them. It's a great idea, by the way. You paraphrased Saul Bellow's book, Humboldt's Gift, where he said, history is a nightmare that we're just trying to get a good night's sleep from. Right. And that American Jews coming to America came just to get a good night's sleep, which I think is an incredible way of, of really summarizing what it is. It's what it is. Did they wake up? Are they still getting a good night's sleep? Because I'll tell you, over here, I feel like we're alive. We are awake. We don't get a good night's sleep, but we're alive. And America is so comfortable that they're just kind of, it feels to me like they're just kind of sleeping. Right. So what Bello says is that uh, he says about the, the character Von Humboldt, who'd come from Crimea, as a Jewish American, you know, as an American immigrant, like many of our own families, uh, he said exactly what you said, which is the history was a nightmare, and he'd come to America to get a good night's rest. And the truth is, America gave Jews a good night's rest, and it still does. Because while American Jews have fought side by side 
American non-Jews in every war that America's fought, from the War of Independence, the Civil War, obviously Vietnam, the two world wars. I mean, American Jews have gone to war many, many times. American Jews have never, ever, ever had to go to war to protect the Jews. Even when American Jews fought in World War II, we all understand America went to war not to protect the Jews, right? America did not drop one bomb on one track to one camp. That story is well known. So what America gave Jews is a good night's rest in two ways. Number one, you didn't have to go to war to protect the Jews. And number two, you don't have to have a Jewish foreign policy. I can vote Republican. I can vote Democrat. My policy is going to, my foreign policy is going to be what my president or my Senate or my House of Representatives choose to do. And I can either endorse it or not endorse it. It's not a Jewish foreign policy. And therefore, in good times, I can't really claim that the Jews did this. But in bad times, I can't blame the Jews. So I have no idea, actually, if there were any Jewish soldiers at my light in the Vietnam War uh, with Thomas Cowley and so forth. But if there were, it's a horrible, horrible thing that American soldiers did, but it's not a Jewish issue. And if there were any Jewish soldiers at Abu Ghraib, it's a shameful thing that American soldiers did that in Iraq, but it's not a Jewish issue. But when Israelis do whatever they do on the Gaza border or in the West Bank or in a war, that is a Jewish issue. And so America gave American Jews a good night's rest from those two things, not having to go to war to defend the Jews and not having to be up at night. Oh my God, what should I as a Jew now endorse? Because this policy is going to reflect on the Jews. American Jews have never had that. Now you're right. Israel has never not only gotten a good night's rest, we've never gotten a nap, right? I mean, we came here, there was, when does the armed conflict with the Arabs start? You know, most people point to the, the riot in Hebron in 1929. So we're now in 2020, right? So we're, we're closing in on a century. Name a Jewish, dec- name a decade in that century where Israelis or prior to the state Jews have not had to go to actual war in order to defend their right to be here. There's never been such a decade. And so uh, you live in Israel, I live in Israel, you have kids here, I have kids here. I also work with hundreds of students at Shalem College here, and I know them very, very well. They have no expectation of a good night's rest. They actually have no expectation of a nap. They kind of understand whether they're religious or completely secular makes absolutely no difference. They understand that their destiny in life by virtue of living here is to have to fight to stay alive with all of the triumph that that can occasionally bring and with all of the heartbreak and the anguish that that also invariably brings. And you're right. It makes you alive. And if you want to look at really interesting stuff, you can look at everything from the raunchiness of Portnoy's complaint by Philip Roth way back when, when in the very, very last part of the book, he has this meeting with this kibbutznik girl named Naomi, I think her name is. And, um, you know, he's attracted to her. But what he's really attracted to is not just, you know, her physical beauty. She's a fighter and she works in the fields and she's a He feels himself a Jewish nebbish, which he basically essentially says. And then you can fast forward many decades of American Jewish literature and look at a really great novel by Jonathan Safran Foer called Here I Am, where the reform rabbi at a funeral basically says, guys, American Jews, we have built an American Judaism based on lying under the radar and not being noticed and not making too much noise. But have we given up meaning in that? And as a result, Jonathan Safran Foer says, we're not really alive in the way that you just said that we're alive. Mm-hmm. And he contrasts these American Jews with their Israeli cousins, the major Israeli cousin character being named Tamir, who basically says, if you lived in Israel, you would be alive. You would stand for something. Now, again, it's an unfair critique of American Jews, but it's important to remember an Israeli didn't write that book. An American Jew 
wrote both of those books. In other words, American Jews have recognized that the good night's rest has been very comforting, has been a great bracha in a lot of ways. Who wants to go to war? Nobody. Who wants to watch their children go to war? Nobody. So we should not sneeze or thumb our nose at the good night's rest that America gave us, but say everybody from Philip Roth to Jonathan Safranfor and many people in the middle, let's recognize that there is a way in which um, the good night's rest also lulls you into sleep. One of the things we have to ask ourselves now as we're meeting in 2020 in January is, is the changing topography of American Jewish life because of the rise of anti-Semitism going to change any of that? I think it's way too early to know, but there is at least reason to keep one's ear very close to the tracks to see which way this thing is headed. Uh, but so far, thank God, it's, it's been some terrible incidents, but it's not a massive wave yet of anti-Semitism. We have to hope and pray that it doesn't become that. So I would say that overarchingly, the, the good night's rest still reigns. Still reigns. I remember hearing somebody saying how what we need in America is a good wave of anti-Semitism to wake Jews up to their Jewish identity, which sounds like such a terrible thing. I understand where it's coming from, because Jews in Europe, anti-Semitism kept them Jews, physically and their identity. And as soon as they had a way out, they were gone. And so... We'll see. We'll see what happens with this wave of anti-Semitism where it leads to. Right. I agree with you completely that it's a terrible thing for us to want to want. In other words, like we shouldn't want that to happen. To even talk about it. To even talk about it is horrifying. You get sort of, you know, a shiver down your spine because it's such a horrible ha- conversation to have. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'll point out to the, those people who say it, and I, like you, have heard people say it, uh, this is a very different world than Europe was. In other words, the Jews in Europe who, as you're, you know, right, sometimes they had to stay in the Jewish world because the non-Jewish world wouldn't accept them because of its anti-Semitism. They knew a fair amount about Jewish life. America is the kind of place where even if there is anti-Semitism, it is more likely to be directed at overt expressions of Jewishness. And Jews who opt out are not going to get pursued. This isn't Nazi-esque anti-Semitism. This isn't Christian theological anti-Semitism. This is about anti-Semitism of privilege, allegedly, of whiteness, of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. So I would, I would caution those people who say, oh, a good wave of anti-Semitism would actually get American Jews to sort of snap to it, maybe, but maybe it would also convince a younger generation of American Jews who know very little about Judaism to say, what do I need this for? Like, I actually don't really know anything about it. It doesn't really move me. I don't need this. And they might just actually drift away. It could exa- have exactly the opposite impact. So I think we ought to be very, very careful before we ever, ever hope for something like that. So that leads into the question that I had later on. This is quoting you. And you should know, I asked this question to Michael Oren as I was going to Tel Aviv to record the second part of our conversation. I was listening to a talk of yours. And you said, how did the richest, safest, most secure, educated, and influential Jewish diaspora community in Jewish history, that is the United States, raise the most illiterate generation of Jews ever produced? So his answer was, Jews today are actually more educated than when he was growing up. But when you, that was his answer. Okay. To each his own. Right. But when you presented the question, you said, this is a question that we, we, people who care about Jews in America, we really need to answer this. Well, I think Michael and I are, first of all, good friends and he's brilliant. So I I hesitate to, to say that I think he's wrong. He's absolutely right that American Jews are more educated in general. The ones that are in the synagogues are more educated. I don't don't think think that's that's true. Okay. The ones who are in traditional synagogues are more educated. That's true. Uh, the Orthodox synagogue that I grew up in um, was an Orthodox synagogue of very, very lovely people who didn't know very, very much. Their children or grandchildren are 
yeshiva graduates in ways that they weren't. They learn Talmud in ways that they didn't. Um, they know Torah in ways that they didn't. He's right about that. But if you compare, for example, my grandfather was a, a pulpit rabbi of a huge conservative synagogue in Long Island, Bar Harbor, Far Rockaway, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, let's say. If you compare the people that went to hear him every Shabbat, because he was a, an unbelievable orator, and people flocked, Orthodox people came, Reformed people came, people went to hear him. But if you compared the rank-and-file conservative Jews who were in that synagogue for many decades when he was the rabbi there, and you compare their grandchildren today who are not in the Orthodox community, there I think it's very clear the level of literacy has plummeted. Level of literacy in terms of Hebrew literacy, level of literacy in terms of knowing a lot about the holidays, in terms of knowing even by osmosis some history, some Bible. I, I think the osmosis has, has gone because Jewish communities disappeared, and, and Jewish education has the Hebrew school education world has never been able to accomplish nearly as much as we hoped that it would. So it was really families or communities or day schools. And um, day schools are a very small percentage of the non-Orthodox world. Families can't do as much. Neighborhoods don't exist like they used to. He and I just don't agree. How do we let it happen? It's very simple. It's like your kitchen. It takes a lot longer to clean up the mess than to make the mess. And it's very easy to uh, lose the thread of Jewish literacy in a generation or two. And it takes a much longer time to recoup it. So one can look, for example, at the poetry of Chaim Nachman Bialik, which every other line is a biblical reference or a rabbinic reference. I mean, you can't read Chaim Nachman Bialik's poetry just by looking at the poetry. You've got to keep pulling books off the shelves. Oh, this is that. That's that. Right. And the good editions of Bialik's poetry actually tell you this is a reference to so and so. So to understand Bialik, even on the surface almost, you need to know a tremendous amount. Now, Bialik grows up. And the Orthodox Eastern European world of Eastern Europe. He then goes to the yeshiva of Elazhin. I mean, Bialik comes to Palestine when he comes to Palestine as a deeply, deeply learned Jew. But he's left most of the world of religion, orthopraxy, etc. behind. Now, tragically, he and his wife never had children. I didn't know that. They didn't have children. But if they had had children, those children would have gone to a secular Palmach-run public school in Tel Aviv. Now, they would have learned something because they lived in Chaim Nachman Bialik's house. But their children would have grown up not in Chaim Nachman Bialik's house, but in the children's home. It's very likely that Chaim Nachman Bialik's children or grandchildren would not have been able to understand the poetry that he took for granted. Because you can really eradicate Jewish literacy in one or two generations. And you can look, without going into names, at certain Israeli contemporary politicians whose grandfathers were extraordinarily important rabbis who just were walking encyclopedias of Jewish knowledge. And the grandchildren are deeply, deeply committed to the Jewish people and deeply, deeply committed to the Jewish state, but they can't have a conversation with you about a Jewish text. Uh, and so in America, what we found out is that all of the newfangled ways of communicating Jewish knowledge didn't work. It was a matter of sitting on your tush and, and learning and studying over texts and um, not being cynical about religion and not being cynical about faith. Uh, you know, it's, and American Jews are not the first ones to discover this. The Haskalah, which was the Jewish Enlightenment, the men, of, mostly men, but also women of letters in Odessa and so forth in the second half of the 19th century and the first few years of the 20th century. That's an experiment that got cut off by Nazism. In other words, we can't say much about that whole generation and what their grandchildren know or didn't know because they went up chimneys in the worst human massacre in history. 
But even during the time of the Haskalah itself, there was good evidence that these yeshiva people who had then become secular, who brought worlds of Jewish learning with them, were not succeeding in transmitting it to their children. And I would say that in Israel, we do face, obviously, an enormous issue of Jewish illiteracy in certain parts of the culture, but much less than people think, because it's accessible. The minute you want to learn, you know Hebrew. So you open up Sefer HaGadah by Bialik and you start to read. I mean, I was sitting in a class this morning in, in, in Shalem College, and, and of the 50 people in the classroom or 40 people in the classroom, I would say, you know, two-thirds are completely non-religious. But first, the professor gave out a chapter of the book of Psalms, because he wanted to show them something about the conception of history way back when. Well, they read the psalm in Hebrew. Everybody totally understood it. It's a hard psalm to understand. So he had to explain it. It's Psalm 80. So it's, it's not, it's tricky, but he explained it. They all understood the words. Then they read something by Yechezkel Kaufman from Golav and Echar, uh, which is, again, a classic Jewish historical text. Then they went into a piyut, said in the Middle Ages, and, and then they read something that you read on Hoshana Rabbah. Um, my point is, there are completely secular people, most of them, but these, these texts were flying around, and whether they say them in their personal ritual liturgical lives or not is irrelevant. They had complete access to these texts. Uh-huh. So language makes a huge difference. They also know a lot about Tanakh, even though Tanakh levels have gone down. They know a fair amount about Tanakh. So when those piyutim or whatever had references to Tanakh, a lot of these secular kids picked it up and were remarking on it and so on and so forth. So I don't want to give Israel an easy pass and say everything's hunky-dory here in terms of Jewish literacy. It's not. Uh, but it's nothing even remotely like what has happened to Jewish literacy in America. And again, as I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, that what it's going to require for these two communities to begin to build bridges is for us to be open and honest about how different we are. A second part of that conversation is for us to be openly admiring of what the other has accomplished, even if we don't do it. American Judaism has brought all kinds of religious and liturgical creativity to the fore that has happened a little bit in Israel, but not in the same way. Israel, on the other hand, has shown American Jews what living in a Jewish language does, what asking your children to serve something that is bigger than themselves and more important than themselves at the peak of the, in the earliest years of their adulthood, when they could be going to college, doing lots of other things, has taught us a lot about how you create lives of devotion to something beyond yourself. We have a lot to learn from each other, but we should also be very honest about the liabilities that each of us face. Uh, in Israel, we obviously have outside enemies, and you know we can hope and pray that we will be able to forestall them for a very long time. Uh, but we should not lull ourselves into a false sense of satisfaction, because those enemies are very real, and they really are serious. So we ought to be honest about that. And we ought to be honest about the dangers, for example, of this ethnic democracy model. It, it, it can flourish, or it can bring out an ugly ethnocentric hyper-nationalism, which would be very ugly. Uh, something that I don't want. Which exists. It exists. Thankfully, I think it's marginal, but it exists and it's a danger. And we have to be very wary of that. And I think American Jews are right to point to us, like, you guys better watch that because that's a really serious issue. They're right. We, I think, also put a spotlight for American Jews on the disastrous, calamitous impact of Jewish illiteracy. And American Jews have to be willing to say one day, the system that we have for teaching Jews about Judaism just doesn't work. And who's willing to say the emperor wears no clothes? Who's willing to say that all these schools, all these synagogues, all these federations, all whatever, camps do some good, but they don't teach those kinds of texts usually? What are we going to do to revamp this thing? It's, but that's going to take somebody acknowledging that there's a crisis. And of course, the reality is that the people in charge have a vested interest in arguing that things are going fine, help us just do more of this so they can raise the money and employ the people. And it's all done out of very, very good int intentions. 
uh, but it doesn't usually make for the possibility of radical rethinking. You covered a lot in your answer. I was in the Shook maybe six months ago, and this woman had her hand open with all these coins in it. She's speaking fluent, beautiful Hebrew, and she looks at me and she says, which ones are the shekels and which ones are the agorot? And I said, are you kidding me? We're speaking in Hebrew. She said, no, I don't know. It's my first time in Israel. So how come your Hebrew is so good? She said, what do you mean? I'm from Argentina. Oh, right. Jews speak Hebrew. They used to. I mean, she was probably an older woman, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. So my father taught at Hopkins for many years, and there was always a significant contingent of Argentinian and South American Jews who were studying at the medical school at Hopkins, or the public school of public health where he was teaching. And we always had them over for Seder. And I remember growing up in the 19, late 60s and 70s and so forth, they spoke Hebrew. You're 100% right. Now, interestingly, if you talk to people in Argentina today, they will tell you that that is much less true, that they are still a very Zionist community, but that Hebrew is not nearly as commonly spoken among young Argentinian Jews. So that's changed a little bit. But yes, it's not surprising that a woman who would be on the older side of things who grew up in Argentina would speak perfectly fluent Hebrew because they really did. It was an amazing thing. So there's one success at least. 100%. I, I, w- I was amazed that she didn't know what the, the money was. I'm amazed that she's still so agorot, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why American Jews need to know Israel better. I wrote an article called Israel is the Lighthouse for American Jewry. Sorry. Unfortunately, my articles don't get as much reading as yours, but uh, you said you saw it. The idea is clear, that the lighthouse is there to guide you if you want it. If you don't, you don't need it. So I understand why American Jews need to know the state of Israel, but why do Israelis need to understand American Jews? I know they're the largest diaspora community, but they're a diaspora community. You mentioned in one of your talks that Israelis look at American Jews like American Jews look at the French Jewish community. It's a large, influential Jewish community, not nearly as big as the American one. And if one day they were all to move away and disappear, how would that affect American Jews? It wouldn't really mean much to them. And so Israelis would be sad that bad things happened to American Jews, they had to move, but it wouldn't be such a big deal. Why do Israelis need American Jews? Well, let's leave aside the obvious answer, which of course is that American Jewish support for Israel on Capitol Hill and so forth, and you know, getting Israel 3.2 whatever billion dollars a year in military aid and getting, getting Congress to be deeply supportive of Israel if God forbid there's a crisis, that's all critically important. Now, APAC understands, which is APAC being, I think, the most effective organization anywhere doing that kind of work, understands full well that there are other populations that need to be brought into this effort because the number of Jews is shrinking. There are more Hispanics in California than there are Jews in the world. There are more evangelicals in the belt between Los Angeles and Dallas than there are Jews in the world. So APAC, which is an unbelievably strategic organization, has understood that you've got to reach out to Hispanics, you've got to reach out to evangelicals, you've got to reach out to American military veterans who tend to vote in higher numbers, who tend to have a different kind of foreign policy, etc. So I'm not arguing that this can all work only on the basis of American Jews, but there's no question that when we're talking at the beginning of 2020, American Jews are still very much important part of this pro-Israel picture in Congress. What will be in 20 years? Who knows? But that's the easy answer. And I think we should push ourselves harder. And here's what I would say. First of all, Israeli Jews need to learn more about American Jews so they can see them in a more positive light. In other words, it's very common for Israeli Jews to say about American Jews, yeah, they're supportive, but they don't come here. And how supportive are they really? And they, they supported the Iran thing, and they, they tend to... That's a big deal, by the way. It you is. said American support from APAC and the, and the Congress is one of the reasons that we need it. But when we needed it, they weren't there for well, us. Well, APAC tried very hard, obviously. I mean, APAC really went to the wall. 
and, and didn't succeed, but tried very hard. Look, there were also Israeli generals who thought that the JCPOA was, was not the end of the world. It may have been the best deal that one could get. So I don't think any of us know yet whether that was a good deal or a bad deal. Trump ripped it up. We'll see where that leads us. Do they get the bomb? Do they not get the bomb? I, whatever. But by and large, right, I mean, American presence or American Jewish influence on Capitol Hill through APAC and other organizations, but mostly APAC was responsible for getting Iron Dome funded, was responsible for all kinds of things that really do matter. So yeah, the, Bar- the Barack Obama thing with Iran, Iran was definitely an exception to this. We know that that's a complicated story. Bibi went to a joint session. He wasn't really wanted by the joint session. Now there's payback in the Democratic Party. Okay, that's very complicated. But again, I think we can... We can have a conversation about that, and reasonable minds really can differ about that. But here's what I think we do understand. First of all, Israelis say about American Jews, eh, they're supportive, but they're not super supportive. And they've done some stuff, but they haven't done enough. They don't live here, et cetera, et cetera. And they're conflicted about Zionism and so forth. And I think we have to understand, first of all, if Israelis knew the history of Woodrow Wilson in 1915 saying, no hyphens, my friends. No, no Austrian Americans, no Italian Americans, no Irish Americans, no German Amer- Americans. If you're Americans, we want you in. If you're going to maintain that hyphen and some other national loyalty, as Wilson said, you're no worthy son to stand under the stars and stripes. That's 1915. Wilson says that. 1970, Balfour Declaration. American Jews are in an impossible situation. Wilson just warned them. No hyphenated national loyalties. And then Balfour comes and Zionists in Europe say, okay, American Jews, Help us build this thing. And I think knowing more about the complexity of American Jewish history would enable Israelis to say, wow, given the impossible situation that they are in, they've done a hell of a lot. Yeah, we may not agree about everything, but, you know, to be done the chavzchut, to be able to look at a group of people and see them in the best possible light. I think the more we know about American Jews, the more we can see how much they have actually accomplished in a setting that was not at all easy. That's part number one. Part number two is they have what to teach us. In other words, those people in Israel who take pride in the fact that there are thousands of women in Israel studying Gemara need to understand that feminism meets Judaism not in Israel. Feminism meets Judaism in America. Women start studying Gemara in America, and then that comes to Israel and it explodes and becomes what it is now. Liturgical creativity, which you're finding in certain places in Israel, even in traditional circles, is fundamentally an American thing. Now, some people like it, some people don't like it, some people have ad halachic attitudes of different sorts, but the, the creativity and the acceptance, when we send Israeli students here from Shalem College to America each year, they come back and they say, I want to be able to bring in Shabbat with the others in my class, because I saw American Jews do this. They, they're all different types of people together. They're gay, they're straight, they're orthodox, they're, but they know how to get together at conferences and this and that and figure out a way to make it work. And I can tell you that here at Shalem, they have put together a Kabbalah Shabbat that they do once every four, six weeks, whatever, where they make it possible for those people who are halachically committed to be present, but they also make it possible for people who are very egalitarianly committed to be present. Those people who don't want to do a liturgical, traditional thing to be part of it. They, I won't go into the details now, but they have figured out an incredibly interesting way of having the entire group bring in Shabbat together and satisfy everybody's religious needs without encroaching really on anyone's religious convictions. And where did they get that idea? They got it from going to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a tremendous amount to learn from American Jews, just like American Jews have a lot to learn from us. And I therefore don't think that the analogy is, you're right, that if French Jewry disappeared, it'd be very tragic, but it wouldn't really affect American Judaism in any meaningful way. If American Judaism disappeared, it actually does potentially impoverish Israeli 
Judaism. Remind you, you know, you and I are sitting here today in, in the southern part of Jerusalem. And if you just take a little map and, and a compass and you make, a, I don't know, a kilometer and a half radius, what's here, right? Shalem, Pardes, Israel Democracy Institute, Yakar, the Hartman Institute. The embassy. The, the embassy, uh, correct. But my point is that there's tremendous numbers of institutions that have brought a distinctly American take on learning, on pluralism, and so forth. They're all American. Without American input, there's no Hartman. Without American input, there's no Israel Democracy Institute. Without American input, there's no Shalem College. Without American input, there's no Pardes. Without American input, most of the things that you see in Southern Jerusalem, which whether you want to go to them or not, whether I want to go to them or not, is irrelevant. They enrich the lives of lots of Israelis. That's an important input to Israel. And I think for us to lose that would make us narrower, would make us less open would really impoverish us. So we need to reach out to each other across the divide in both directions and say, our survival and our flourishing depends on your survival and your flourishing. So let's understand each other better. Stop arguing about things that we really can't change and start understanding how different we are, but at the same time, the greatness of the other. And let's build a different kind of relationship. We're getting towards the end, and I'm skipping things here. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Okay. I'm going to ask you about the Kotel. I really wanted to ask Natan Sharansky about the Kotel, because he's the architect of the Kotel Agreement. Right. And I asked him, does the reform movement, the liberal movements, really need their own space at the Kotel? And his answer was, no, of course they don't. But if it makes them feel good, then that's fine with me. I'll build them whatever they want, as long as they'll keep supporting Israel. So what's your opinion? I don't entirely disagree with Natan about that. I think um, my own personal view, by the way, is that the, the Kotel battle was the wrong battle to pick. Uh, the people who are at the Kotel all day long, day after day, davening three times a day, are Orthodox Jews. They're actually mostly Haredi Jews. Mostly, not all, but mostly. The Kotel tends to get filled up on the southern side where the mixed Kotel is, mostly on Rosh Chodesh and Mondays and Thursday mornings for Bnei and Benot Mitzvah. I'm not in any way disparaging or demeaning the importance of that experience for those people. But most non-Orthodox Jews are not coming to the Kotel on a day-to-day basis, davening there, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's taken on meaning that's kind of bigger than it really should have. And my own personal view is that it was the wrong battle to fight. But I agree with him that once the battle was picked, they had to be honored because you can't have a national symbol, which to them is so important, tell them that they're excluded and then still expect them to endorse or, or, or support the state of Israel. But the Kotel, look, I mean, Bibi mishandled one thing terribly, which wasn't clear to me even in the immediate aftermath of when he broke the deal, but it became, I don't know why I didn't understand it, but it just was so obvious to me later on. He didn't have the power to push the deal through. All he had to come out and say was, I don't know why he didn't do this. I'm in favor of the deal. I'm totally in favor of the deal. I cannot get it through. I do not have a coalition without the Haredim, and they are not going to change their view. So I have two choices. I can lose my government and there'll be no mixed section at the Kotel or no new entrance at the Kotel, or I can keep my government and there'll be no new entrance at the Kotel. Mm-hmm. Given the fact that I don't have the political power to make that happen, I'm choosing for the sake of Israel to stay in power and to keep my government. And I say with tremendous sadness, just do the math. I can't make this happen. If he had said that instead of, you know, I have to renege because I don't think American Jews could have gotten that angry. I was angry also, by the way, because I thought it was a tremendous... A I tremendous, know. I read the article. Yeah, a lot of people I'm read not the gonna articles. Say it, was else. The, it was a stupid article that I wrote. Probably like one of the stupidest articles I've ever written. But I was angry. And you should never write when you're angry if you're not going to either sleep on it or show it to your wife before you click send. I usually do both. I sleep on it and show it to my wife. 
That time I didn't do either. So it was really stupid. But again, if he had said that, even I wouldn't have been angry. Like I would have said, okay, you know, he's right. You just do the numbers. Anybody can look upon the internet and see what the powers, you know, what the numbers of each party in the Knesset coalition are. And you'd see he didn't have the votes and the government would have fallen. And did I want the government to fall over that? When especially the next government that was going to get elected wasn't going to be any different. Look at our election system here now. So I think the Kotel matters a lot. Whether it should or it shouldn't isn't the issue. It does matter to the people a lot. Israel's is going to have to figure out a way of uh, not thumbing its nose at American Jews who are not Orthodox. And we don't have real leadership in that role anymore. One can imagine a world in which eventually the um, coalition does not need the Haredi votes. You could have that in this next election, right? You could see a world in which blue and white, Likud without Bibi, Lieberman, and Labor, let's just say, all get together, many more than 60 votes, and they decide to do a kind of a unity government. And that's when they say, we're passing this thing, we're building the entrance, we're going to do it fast. And so then if the government changes, not likely to knock it down. Um, that could happen, but you know we can't even get a government elected, so who knows how that's going to play out. Okay, so related to your sons, you've spoken, you have two sons, right? A daughter and two sons. A daughter and two sons, right? And you've talked about your sons in your talks. One of them was in an elite unit. Before he was drafted, I remember hearing a talk from you where you said you explained to your son the significance, or maybe to all your children, the significance of serving in the IDF, what it really means. So I have two sons. I have five girls, two boys, and eventually the boys are going to go into the army. So as a father, I want to know, what did you tell your sons before they went into the army, or your daughter as well? Well, my daughter also... I I don't think we said anything to them about the importance. They grew up in a home in which it was obvious. In other words, they grew up in a home in which we constantly had soldiers over for Shabbat, in which um, we spoke with pride about what Israel has accomplished, and some part of that obviously being the ability of Jews to defend themselves. We never simply had a, we never had to have an actual, you know, musr schmooze with them and say, listen, this is really important because it was very obvious in our house that this is what you were going to do. We, we, we take Israel very, very seriously. What I think we did communicate them what, to them was tremendous pride in Israel, obviously leaving our home in Los Angeles and moving, you know, a big house, moving into an apartment, leaving behind two cars, having one car, leaving a great job. And I've been very fortunate to, you know, find my place again in Israel. But there was a period of years when we first got here that, you know, it took me a while to find my footing, but it was a sacrifice that uh, we felt was worth making. I think what we modeled for our kids was a love of this country and a sense that we all make sacrifices to live in this country, especially if we choose to come in the middle of our lives and so on and so forth. Uh, we're very fortunate that our kids somehow also found in their own kishkas the desire to, in the case of two of them, to serve more time than was required, in the case of one, to spend a very long time in the army and to become an officer and, and so forth. But they all served their country with tremendous pride, um, and we're very proud of them for a whole array of reasons, but that's among them. Okay, last question. What are you optimistic about in the relationship between American Jews and the state of Israel? What I'm optimistic about is that Israel is unquestionably the most extraordinary project of the Jewish people in the last 2,000 years. There have been other great projects. I mean, the project of learning in Eastern Europe in the 18th, 19th century was unbelievable. American Judaism is in many ways still an incredibly interesting project. Uh, but Israel is a success in ways that it is just simply hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that essentially, a little bit more than a century ago, Tel Aviv was sand. Not mostly sand. It was sand. To look at the pictures of Jerusalem from the early part of the 20th century and to see now places where there's no 
plot to build anything or to park your car. It was all open fields. To see what Israel has done to the sense of self of Jews, to see what Israel has done to the ability of Jews to defend themselves, to see what Israel has done to make Jews part of the international economy of ideas and of entertainment, whether it's literature or whether it's movies, go on Netflix and see how much stuff is produced in Israel or the ideas came from Israel. It has positioned the Jews in an entirely different way. Israel has given the Jewish people a new lease on life. And I really believe that um, if we can both tell our stories better, American Jews who may choose to come, may choose not to come, may choose to agree with Israel about certain policies, may choose not to agree with Israel about certain policies, can come to see how extraordinary an accomplishment this really is. And to say to their children and their grandchildren, you will live wherever you live, your political views will be whatever they will be, but we have as Jews an obligation to understand that that country is not a country. That country is the rebirth of the Jewish people as a three-dimensional, culturally rich, religiously diverse, economically robust opportunity for the Jews to to have a new lease on life. Uh, My optimism is that it's so clear to me that that's what's happening here, is that with time, more and more Jews are going to see it that way, regardless of where they live in the world. That was fantastic. Thank you very much, Danny. My pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure and honor (laughs) to do this. And thank you very much. Thank you. That was Daniel Gordis, Senior Vice President and the correct Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Danny. It was a real pleasure for me. I have many more guests I'm looking forward to speaking with in the future. Please feel free to be in touch with me. You can write to me at Barak, B-A-R-A-K, at JewishPeopleIdeas.com. And you can listen to all the episodes by going to jewishpeopleideas.com. You'll see all of the different places where this podcast is distributed. Please make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to it, to share it with your friends, and to check out my books on Amazon. Just type in my name, Barack Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N. I want to thank the people that support this podcast financially. You can also become a supporter by going to jewishpeopleideas.com and you'll see there's a button there to become a supporter that'll take you to a Patreon page where you can also support my other podcasts at the same time The Hasidic Story Project which please make sure to check it out The Hasidic Story Project is spreading like wildfire people around the world are writing to me and telling me how much they enjoy the stories how they binge on them and how many children around the world are going to sleep at night listening to the Hasidic Story Project. Check it out by typing in either my name, Barack Holman, or the Hasidic Story Project, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you very much.